17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, thankful to have Dr. House here tonight. Anytime he's here, I'm super intimidated to preach uh, because he's a lot better preacher than me. And so now there's like nine better preachers than me in the room, and uh, that's just intimidating to me. But I'm excited nonetheless, and maybe he won't shut his Bible within the first five minutes. Because I've been to a revival or a preaching meeting with Dr. House, and you can tell when he tunes the guy out because he just closes his Bible and sets it off to the side. And so I hope I'll make it past the introduction tonight. He's already got it closed. Yeah, that's, that's not good. All right, Acts chapter 17 tonight. I want to talk to you about a, a subject that I believe will be very beneficial. Uh, and I, I believe we can learn something if we'll pay attention to the Bible tonight. So Acts chapter 17, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now when they had passed through Ampipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city, and when they heard these things, and when Jason, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on the sermon tonight. Father, I pray tonight that you'd be with me. I pray that you'd give me discretion, direction, Lord. I pray that you'd give me wisdom. Lord, I pray tonight that you'd use this sermon in the hearts of every person in the room. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that the prayer of every single person in the room tonight is open our heart and our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, please give us your spirit. Please give us your blessing this evening. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I believe the greatest need for America and for the church is revival. However, I do not believe we are wanting to accept the responsibility nor the repercussions of it if it were to come. I think we as Christians want to talk about it. We want to imagine a world with it. And yet we are not going to do anything in our own personal life to make it happen. I want to talk to you tonight about the ups and downs of turning the world upside down. You see, revival would be a, just an amazing thing to be a part of. Very few people get to take part of it uh, on a large scale in their life. You see, most people will never see the revivals of thousands and thousands of people walking the aisle, hundreds of thousands of people coming to know Christ as their personal Savior. But could you imagine a day 
if that were to happen. What an amazing day that would be. But I just believe that we have put up barriers saying we will not go there if that's what it requires. When I was in college, I had to juggle a, a, a system of ups and downs. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. In college, where I went to college, the food is not that great. And so I played this ups and down game. And what I mean is, I had really three choices that I discovered throughout my college career. I had the choice of eating in the cafeteria. And by far, that was the most cost-effective means of sustenance, if you will. It was by far the cheapest on me. I could take me and my wife and, and, uh, and or my girlfriend at the time, I could take us to the cafeteria and not have to pay a single dime because that was involved in our room and board and, and our tuition payment. So I didn't really realize the, the payment of that. The only problem with eating with in, in, in the cafeteria was that sometimes you were unsure of what you were exactly eating. Now, this is not to say it's like McDonald's, because I'm not sure that they're all beef patties or at all beef. I think that's my biggest question. But uh, this would be, we would go in and we would have what we called mystery meat. And it was a roast beef type looking product. The only problem is roast beef is supposed to be meat colored. This had a green and purple sheen depending on which light bulb you put it under. And so it looked a lot like some of the fishing lures that you would see at Target or Walmart. And so, so you had this cafeteria option, which was not the tastiest by any means, but it was by far the most cost effective. There was a second option, and we partook of this many, many times. It was the Little Caesars and dollar menu option. And what that means is that was the second most cost effective method. It cost you a little bit. For instance, have you all ever heard the uh, uh, pizza for $5, $5 box? That's what we'd go. And, and really, it's not pizza. It's the box of pizza with cheese put in it. And so you were eating the cardboard that should be pizza, but there was cheese on the pizza anyway. So $5, you could go and you could buy yourself eight slices of pizza, which would fill me and my then-girlfriend and and obviously, she never paid for anything, even though she had the much better job, and I was paying for stuff on my minimum wage job. And, you know, that's how it still works today. She still gets paid more than me, and I still pay for everything. I don't understand how that works. But uh, nonetheless, uh, so you had the option of going to Little Caesars, getting the $5 pizza, and then in the evening, you could go partake in some of the mini dollar menus. So you could go to McDonald's. You could go to Jack in the Box. They have a value menu. Many of the places have them. The only problem with this was, at the end of the day, you were very depressed and felt like somebody had punched you in the stomach about 12 times. Because the food made you feel terrible, you did not want to get up and go to class, you wanted to sit and mope in your bed. And you were out 12 bucks. So that was option two. Option three is one that I took, uh, partook in when I was only a bachelor, or when my girlfriend was off doing something else. Option three was the expensive meal. And this meal for me was Quiznos. Oh, man. I would go to Quiznos, and they had what was called the prime rib sub. And it was a sub that was loaded with this steak 
And it did not have any sheen of any type. It just tasted awesome. And so it was in the sandwich. They'd load it down with cheese. They would run it through their oven. And since I was really splurging on this meal, I would get one of their giant cookies, which was about the size of a small Dixie plate. And I would have them run that through the toaster oven. And, and many of you did not know you could do that, but you can. It's amazing. Because it takes this cookie, toasts it, and makes the chocolate melted just enough so that when you bite into it, it burns your face with this molten hot lava chocolate. And it's amazing. But the only problem with this was it was the most expensive and you could only eat one meal a day if you did that. And that's why I say I only partook in this as a bachelor. It's because I would go at lunchtime around one o'clock and I would buy this large, large meal. And I would eat this large meal, which would cost me about $12, the same as the dollar menu and Little Caesars cost. The only benefit was it tasted so good. The downfall was many nights I cried myself to sleep in hunger pains because I was so hungry. So there was this ups and downs game. I could have the cafeteria food and not go broke, but it tasted terrible. And I'm not sure I will not develop cancer later in life because of that food I ate. There was the dollar menu and Little Caesars uh, uh, menu, and there was also the Quiznos option. So I could choose any of them I want. Just like that, I believe there would be ups and downs if revival were to come. And I don't mean to say it as if we don't want revival to come, because I believe if we were to be able to take part in a revival, it would be the most blessed time of our lives. It would make our, our younger days, it would make the glory days seem like just a thing of the past if we could see true revival in our lifetime. But I don't want to paint a picture like it would be a Rose Day parade. I don't want to paint a picture that it would all be pleasant because as revival breaks out in our text, persecution comes. And there's the up and down of revival is if you have revival, the devil's going to fight you. And the reason I don't believe the Lord can send revival at this point in time is because of our faith limitations. Oh, it's not God not sending revival. It's us not being ready to accept the responsibility of revival. Our faith is too small. We, We wouldn't be able to stand for five minutes of the world's persecution. So I want to take a look tonight at the ups and downs of turning the world upside down. I want you to notice, first of all, in our passage tonight, the proof of Jesus. This is where our passage begins, and I believe this is where revival would begin if it were to come. In, the, in verse number 2, the Bible says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Now, what was he reasoning with them about? Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. You know what Jesus proclaims in John chapter 12? And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. You see, I believe that revival will begin with prayer to God and preaching of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe revival will take place when we do those three things. We pray to God and ask for it. We preach Jesus so that sinners can get right 
and that saints can get righter. I believe that it will come through the power of the Holy Spirit as every true and great revival does. But right here, they start at the one place where revival must start. Scripture. Look, verse number two. He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. You know what the Bible tells us and instructs us to do? The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me ask you a question. If you knew that your doctor studied his course of study, of doctoring, or whatever you want to call it, if you knew that your doctor spent as much time in his books as you do God's book, would you trust him as a physician? If you knew that your attorney was being updated on all the new laws, and, and there's a lot of them being passed nowadays, aren't there? If you knew that your attorney studied all the new and all the current laws like you study God's law, would you be willing to pay his fee? We are instructed as Christians, and, and, and just like this morning, uh, Dad pointed out how they respect their book, but they not only respect and reverence their book, I respect our book, but they study and know their book. And I don't care whether you carry the Bible head high, I don't care whether you never put anything on top of it from a coffee cup to a computer, I don't care what you put on top of it, I don't care where you hold it, I don't care how much you respect it, if you don't know the, the contents of that book, we'll never see revival. How well do you know that book? We are to rightly divide it. If someone's salvation depended on your knowledge of Jesus Christ and being able to point to them in the Old Testament and the New Testament that He is Christ, would they be saved? I remember I was in college and I took a course called personal evangelism and this course was very simplistic means of evangelism it was teaching us really the romans road and you say that was a college course yeah my institution is not that academically gifted so that's why i chose it but the first course was personal evangelism very simple it was the john 316 romans 323 romans 6 uh, 23 those types of Verses and that type of Romans Road introductory to evangelism. Now, I passed that course of flying colors because I had known all those things since I was about knee-high to a grasshopper. And they were doing it on flannel graphs here at the church. So I did that no problem. Well, the next semester, of course, came up on my schedule that I needed. And it just so happened that personal evangelism was a prerequisite to advanced evangelism. And so I took advanced evangelism, and I went in there one day, and I didn't realize that it was an upper-level class. And there was a bunch of juniors and seniors sitting around me as a second-semester freshman, and I was like, hey, guys, y'all are cool. I look up to y'all. And I was excited to be in the class until, like, within the very first few classes that I ever went to, he passed us a quiz, and the first quiz said, list ten verses that prove the deity of Christ. And I sat there, and I put two down. You know how convicted I became as a preacher? Not being able to prove that my Savior was God? Let me ask you this. If I were to pass you a quiz that asked you to explain what deity was, would you be able to pass? I'm worried that we as Christians don't take Christianity seriously. 
I'm worried that we as Christians don't know the religion by which we stand upon. I'm worried that if we, like Paul, had to open and allege the scriptures to some lost man, I'm worried that at the end of the day, they would know more about science than we would the Savior. I'm worried. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that we are to have an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is within you. Do you have a reason for believing what you believe? Or would you have to say, oh, let me go ask preacher. It's not preacher's responsibility to know the Bible for you. It's yours. Revival will start with our knowledge and study of Scripture. It will start when we take the Bible seriously. Revival is not going to be found in some song, in some worship style. Revival is not going to be found in some southern gospel group. Revival is going to be found when men and women get serious about the Word of God and the will of God, which is contained within the Word of God. That's when revival will become a thing that we can realize. But only then. Not only was revival pointed to in Scripture, it was found in his suffering. Now, how did Paul show these men and show these women that Christ truly was the Savior? You see, they did not have the book of Acts while we're reading the book of Acts. They did not have John and and Mark and Luke to, to prove the deity of Christ. How did Paul prove to these men that Christ truly was the Messiah? I want you to take your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. Paul simply pointed out the fact that the Savior was meant to suffer. It was prophesied he would suffer, and it was his destiny to suffer. And no man, notice this, no man in history has ever suffered more than Jesus Christ. Not on the battlefield, not in the worst prison camp. There has never been anyone suffer more than my Savior on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us a little bit about that suffering. Verse number 3, the Bible says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. You know what the Bible says? That in the Old Testament Christ would come. I believe the first Sabbath day that Paul went in there, and you can believe whatever you want. I believe Paul said, well, let me start you guys out at one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But everybody take your Bible to the book of Esaias. Isaiah, chapter 53. And I believe Paul opened and alleged to them that one day the Savior would have to come and suffer for our sins and for our punishment. Take your Bible to Psalm chapter 22. Hold your place in Isaiah chapter 53. Psalm chapter 22. You see, if you look and you study the Word of God, there's plenty of places that talk about the suffering and the resurrected Savior. Psalm chapter 22. Now, this is not the New Testament. This is something that Paul would have had access to. Psalm chapter 22. Verse number 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season am silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb, that thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. Listen to the agony of our Savior here. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Not broken, but out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And now has brought me into the dust of death. You understand that it was not just a... A, a, a new thing that Jesus would have to suffer. But all the way back in the book of Isaiah and all the way back in Psalm chapter 22, and I even submit to you that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, in the very first prophecy of the Bible found in verse 15, that Jesus was prophesied that he would have to suffer for sins. Paul goes in this day to the synagogue and he says, Gentlemen, I want you to take your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. Gentlemen, I want to take you to the suffering Savior found in Psalm chapter 22. You see, Jesus was found in his suffering, but not only was he found in his suffering, he was found in his resurrection. I want you to take your Bible back to Isaiah chapter 53, where we've already read. Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 7. Verse number 7 says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out from of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Notice this in verse 10. Verse 9, he dies. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressions. And he bare the sins of many. And made intercession for the transgression. You see verse 9 we find a dead, a dying savior. Verse 10 we find a resurrected savior. Psalm chapter 110, uh, verse number 1 says this, The Lord 
said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. You see, there's two lords in the passage. The first lord is Jehovah or Jehovah. The second lord is Adonai. You see, Jesus one day sat there and looked at God the Father in the eyeball and said, sit down and I will make thine enemies thy footstool because I'm not just going to die, but I'm going to rise again from the dead. You see, Paul did not have to search the book of John. He did not have to search the book of Matthew. He did not have to find it somewhere in Romans or in Acts. But the Old Testament proclaims and exclaims a Savior who would suffer and die, but on the third day rise again. If Paul could do it in the Old Testament, let me ask you, can you do it in the New? I mean in a testament that's oozing with Christ. With four books written completely about his ministry, could you prove he had to suffer and he had to die for the sins of mankind? If we're going to see revival, it must come from a seriousness and a reverence and a study of the Word of God. Paul could prove anything to these men. And because he could, the Bible says multitudes of Greeks believed. Of the the women, oh, not a few, but many believed. But it was all because he knew the Word of God and could share the Word of God. We know it. I just am not sure that we do. But if we're ever going to see revival, I believe that we'll have to. I believe that preachers can preach until they're red in the face, and I do that quite often, don't I? I I can whisper and I get a little red in the face. But preachers can preach until they're red in the face, but until laymen take the book seriously. And and I'm not just letting preachers off the hook either, because there's a lot of preachers who need to take the Bible a little more seriously and put a little more Bible in their preaching and a little less preach in the Bible, if you know what I mean. Uh, There's a lot of preachers that need to know it, but you as a Christian with individual soul liberty, you have a responsibility to know the Bible. And it is not God's plan for called full-time servicemen to, to reach this world. It is God's plan that His servants reach this world. Oh, if revival is going to come, we're going to have to know this book. We're going to have to know our Savior. We're going to have to know that He died. He was buried. He rose again the third day. You see, all revival must come from preaching Christ. Secondly, I want you to notice tonight in our passage, take your Bibles back to Acts chapter 17. Not only uh, the, the preaching or the proof of Jesus, I want you to notice, secondly, the priority of the Jews. Now, specifically, there was a group of people who did not believe. In verse number 5, we find out exactly who that was. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, And gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, why would they do this? Why would they get so angry at so many people coming to know Christ? Our religion is not a religion of violence or animosity. Our religion is a religion of peace. It's a relationship with the Prince of Peace that pours out into a peace that passeth all understanding. That's our religion. Why would these Jews become so angry? I want you to notice, first of all, their reaction. The Bible says in verse 5, But the Jews which believe not moved with envy. You know why? Because they got jealous. They saw a religion that had power and theirs did not. 
See, their religion of works is dead without the religion of grace. And so they saw this religion and converts coming and they got so, uh, so angry and so envious and so jealous. But do you know what? The world's reaction to Christ will never make sense. I point you to Luke chapter 8, the maniac of Gadara. The Bible says that there's a man who meets Jesus at the shoreline. And as soon as this man comes, we get a little backstory about him. He's been terrorizing the town. He runs around naked as a jaybird. I've heard sermons preached with this title, A New Dude in a Rude Mood. And this man terrorized and assaulted the city. He ran around every day naked. I'm sure as the kids were playing kickball on the playground, the teacher had to say, Kids, don't look that way. And what do you do when you hear, don't look that way? (laughs) What way? What way? And I'm sure that they dealt with this problem all the time. The Bible even says that this man was bound with chains and with fetters. And the people, the, 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 the citizens of this town had met him and bound him. And the Bible says because of this demon possession, he was so strong that he could break the chains and, and tear the fetters. That's a pretty strong man. And he could do this and he was just terrorizing. The Bible says he made his home in the tombs. He slept with dead people. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like graveyards, but I definitely don't like graveyards at night. And I'm not going to be found in one of them at night. And so I could not imagine a man being so out of his mind that he's running around town naked, breaking chains, hanging out in a graveyard. He's terrorizing these citizens. The Bible says he meets Jesus. Let me say it this way. Jesus meets him. And he changes his life totally. So much so that with just a few words, Jesus cast the swine out of, uh, cast the demons out of the man into a herd of swine that's feeding on a hillside. The swine run off into the ocean and are, are drowned. And the man, we find him at the next verse, seated, clothed, and in his right mind. Now, I would say he was pretty acting pretty out of his mind just a few uh, verses ago, would you not? And now the Bible says he's clothed and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. What, what do you think the people of the town would do? It would seem like they would meet Jesus with great jubilation, with, with great joy. Jesus, you, you've saved us from our problem. But instead, the Bible says that the people come out and meet Jesus, and they're fearful. And instead of accepting Jesus with a feast or with praise, you know what they do? They tell him to leave. The world will never have a positive reaction when they meet Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about sinners who get right, because I've seen some positive reactions after that. Have you not? Grown men broke over, crying, getting right, confessing sins. I've seen that. But I'm talking about the world will always have strange reactions. A woman caught in adultery, I believe it's in John chapter 8, comes to, to meet Jesus. These Pharisees bring her to Jesus and... And they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery, the very act. What are you going to do about it? And the whole reason they did this was to bring Jesus to tempt him, to see what he would say. They say, the law of Moses says that we are to stone her. What do you say? Jesus kneels down and writes in the sand. And the Bible says he pretended like he didn't even hear him. And that's a good way to handle a lot of fools who are speaking in folly. Just ignore them. But Jesus rises up and says, 
Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You know, one man after another dropped their stone and went home. But literally in the next verse, we still find the Pharisees there. And they're questioning Jesus because Jesus goes on to talk about him being the light of the world. And they go on to question Jesus even more. And they're trying to catch Jesus in a lie. Hey, man, he was just so merciful and so gracious to this woman. And yet they're still there antagonizing him and questioning him. The world will never have a positive reaction to Jesus. Why do we expect that they would? When I was younger, my dad brought home a a bobcat. Not like the, not that bobcat. Y'all were all confused. One of those machines, the little tractors. Y'all know what I mean? It's, It's a very compact tractor. They can turn on a dime. Many of them have tracks. They have a small bucket on the front. And uh, they're, they, they're amazing little machines. They can do a ton of work. And I've driven tractors my whole life. I mean, I have a picture with me on a tractor with my papa when I couldn't have been but maybe a year old. I was probably Caitlin's age. I, I've been around tractors. I've been on tractors my whole life. But I had never driven a bobcat. And so Dad comes home with this bobcat. And I said, Dad, what's that over there? He's like, oh, we're borrowing that. It's a bobcat. I said, okay, well, he said, but I got to warn you, don't go out there and drive it because uh, the controls are a little weird. I'll show you how to do it, but I got something to do first. Well, as I said, I've been around tractors my whole life. I've driven small tractors. I've driven big tractors. I hand drove a lot of them as baby. You know, I, I, I know tractors. I know the green ones are great and the red ones are junk. We have a, a, a farmer here in the church. Uh, he, he is a legitimate farmer. And uh, one day I went over to his place, and, and I, I saw he had a red tractor. I was like, you like that red tractor? He says, nope, I like the green ones, but this is the one I could afford. <laughs> and so uh, I know that, but I, I've been around tractors, and so my dad almost, like, demeaned me by saying, oh, let me show you how to do it, little one. <laughs> I got this. So as soon as dad went off to do his rat killing, whatever he had to take care of, the call of the bobcat was almost like a bug to light. I've got to go. I've got to go. So I go out to the bobcat. Then I get in the cage. Now there's a cage around these things. And that should have been my first warning. But there's a cage around these uh, 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 bobcats. And there's a roller coaster seat belt. That should have been warning number two. You literally take this and strap it down over your waist like you're on like Mr. Freeze. Remember not long ago I told the Mr. Freeze story? That's how it clicked. It drops down and locks you in. So I put that down. I was like, I got this. But I will say the controls were way different than anything I'd ever seen. There's a control on this side, a control on this side. and But there's still a key. <laughs> turned it right on. No problem. Got that part down. After that, it's all a little blurry. <laughs> to be honest with you, I put it in a gear and I began to drive and it almost threw me out. But thankfully, it has a cage and a roller coaster seatbelt on it. And that roller coaster seatbelt penetrated my hip. Have y'all noticed I walk with a limp? That's why. That bobcat hit me so hard, it literally like a bucking bull, and I'm not making this up, it went boom, boom, 
And my whole body weight went forward, and that seatbelt grabbed onto me, and I had to walk away in tears. You know, I'm thinking, what does Dad know? What does he know? Well, after that experience, I found out he knows a little bit more than me. No matter how great our Savior is, and no matter how tremendous his policies are and his book is, no matter how awesome they are, the world does not want to hear and accept what he has to say. Now, that's not to mean we're not to preach him, but I just don't believe the world is going to believe Jesus like we do. They're not going to react to him. They're going to react to him in envy, in jealousy, in disdain. So there's the reaction. Secondly, I want you to notice the resort. So they're moved with envy, and they take unto them certain lewd fellows of a baser sort. Now, that is one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. That explains the, uh, the uh, uh, congregation at Joshua Baptist Church. Certain lewd fellows of a baser sort. I'm just joking there. It probably describes the leadership team, if we were really honest. Lewd fellows of a baser sort. But I had to look up what lewd fellows of a baser sort is. I've only called my wife that about 30 times, so I needed to know what it meant. That was a joke. Um, but So I looked up what the l- word lewd meant. That's not a word that I use often. So lewd means inclined to, characterized by, or inciting to lust or lasciviousness. That sounds pretty bad. The second definition is obscene or indecent. So we can imagine these men as being indecent fellows of a baser sort. Now, then I had to look up what baser meant. And I found out that baser means the lowest or bottom part. In other words, these men were obscene, indecent men of the lowest kind of man there is. And that's the type of people that these religious Orthodox Jews were willing to associate with to extinguish revival. They were willing to do anything they could to shut up this Christianity thing. You think it's changed today? I don't. Let me give you an example. There is a sect and group of people who would rather believe that they have descended from a monkey. They would rather believe that their father and their grandfather were hairy baboons, and that one day that baboon had enough intelligence about itself to stand up on two feet and begin to walking upright until slowly but transitionally it moved to an upright position permanently. That's what people would rather believe than believing in a creator God. They're in outright denial even though they have obsolete proof. They're in outright denial and rejection that there could be a creator God. And if they're out in outright denial of that, I promise they're in outright denial of a suffering but resurrected Savior. Oh, the world's not going to accept this message. They're willing to resort to anything to not have to admit to God. You know why they don't want to admit to God? Because if they admit to God, that means they have to answer to God. I've got news for them. It really doesn't matter if they admit to him or not. They're going to answer to him. The Bible says every tongue shall confess and every knee will bow at the name of Jesus Christ. They're going to have to bow to the King of kings and Lord of lords one day. And even the greatest man and even the greatest king on this earth will bow his knee to my king. 
they're not going to admit it. They resort to some of the strangest things. Thirdly, I want you to notice the riot. Now, this is going to be very hard to describe to you of how this took place. But these religious Jews asked these lewd fellows of a baser sort to start something. And the Bible goes on to tell us they gathered a company or a posse or a group and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, not only are they willing to resort to using people who would probably never be resorted to in any other case, they're willing to cause an uproar or what I label as a riot. Now, if I had preached this sermon last week, we would not really be that familiar with rioting other than in far parts of this world. You know, we turn on the television and in some Middle Eastern country, there's a group of people with fire and the police officers are having to tear gas them. But this week, have we not as Americans become quite familiar with rioting? I by no means am an expert on this situation we've had this week. I honestly, to tell you the truth, I don't watch the news because it depresses me. I'd rather read the good news than watch the bad news. So I don't watch Fox News because it's boring. I don't watch CNN because it's liberal. But it's just going on. I don't watch some of these things, so I'm not an expert. To be honest with you, I didn't know much of this stuff was taking place until my wife told me. And she found out on Facebook. So you know how accurate all that was. But I want to read you just a timeline. I'm not taking sides, because honestly, I'm not informed enough to take a side. But here's the problem. Nobody else is. But we'll go on. August 9th, while driving a police SUV, Officer Darren Wilson encounters Michael Brown and a friend of Brown walking down the street about midday. Accounts differ, but witnesses agree there was a confrontation And Wilson fired multiple shots at Brown, killing him. Autopsies found that Brown had been shot at least six times. Now, that's not partial to police officer. That's not partial to Mr. Brown. That is as uh, impartial as it can be. Autopsy revealed six shots had been fired into Mr. Brown. August 10th. This is the day after. At least two dozen businesses are damaged. And one store is set on fire when looting breaks out during the protests. According to police, 32 people are arrested and two officers are injured. Now, this is literally the day after that event took place. I would submit to you that they were not interested in justice because they did not allow uh, the justice system to take place. They were interested in their own interests. November 24th, now this occurred on August 9th, November 24th, this was Monday. A decision from a grand jury in St. Louis has revealed that Officer Darren Wilson would not be indicted. Since, there has been constant rioting. And from what I can tell, it only peaked on Black Friday. 
as people took themselves and laid in the floor of malls, so much that shoppers who were trying to find Christmas bargains could not navigate the mall because there were so many people laying in the floor in revolt against Black Friday. And they were saying, if black people don't matter, Black Friday does not either. I'm not taking sides. There were people of all colors and all races and all ethnicities there at the mall rioting. I'm just saying these people are not interested in justice. They're interested in their own uh, priorities. They want the head of this officer on a platter. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be there. I'm not saying it should. I'm just saying they're not satisfied with our justice system playing out. And if you listen to the comments of our president, neither is he. The world does not want justice. It wants its way. It is not content with equality, but much rather prefers partiality when it's to its own benefit. If they're not willing to accept the death of a young man and an officer who is in authority to that young man, if they're not willing to accept a decision in that stature, what makes you think that if revival were to break out in Joshua, Texas, spill over into Cleveland, spill over into Burleson, spill over into Arlington so that the Cowboys Stadium no longer sells alcohol and no longer has some of the wicked things that take place at the Cowboys game like Tony Romo throwing interceptions, but we'll go on. If, if, if revival did start here and spill over, what's to make you think that it would not be met with the same type of riots? It did here in Acts chapter 17. I believe they'll do anything to silence the message of Jesus. They'll do anything to squelch revival, even if it's shooting one of us. I promise you, revival has to be met with tremendous faith. It must begin in faith of people believing that they're willing to accept any repercussion, any calls for revival to break out. There again, upsides and downsides to turning the world upside down. So, not only have we noticed these few things, but finally tonight I want you to notice the purpose of the judgment. What was the true reason behind all of this? Why were they so angry? Why did they bring these men to the leaders of the city to be judged? I want you to notice two things. Verse number six, they hate change. The Bible says, and when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Can I share a secret with you? The world does not want to be turned upside down. It's quite content with the way it's going. Did you know that the Bible teaches us in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. I looked up rudiments. The word means elements or first principles of uh, of an element. In other words, uh, as the world has its own foundation and it has its own course, and any time you interfere or any time you mess with that, they're not going to be happy. They're not going to like you messing up their foundational structure. And you say, oh, Brother Andrew. The world's changed a lot since Acts chapter 17. The world's changed quite a lot. Maybe technology has changed, but can I say since the uh, temptation in Genesis uh, of Adam and Eve, 
The world has been the same. The same things are in the world. Let me point you to 1 John chapter 2. Verse number 16 says this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We have cars today, and they did not have cars in Acts chapter 17. We have sliced bread today, and they did not necessarily have it in Acts chapter 17. But I submit to you, although technology has changed, the world has not. It's still people loving the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life, and they choose that over Christ. It's pretty simple, really. It's people wanting to reject God because they enjoy the pleasures of this world. The world's not changed. The world doesn't want to change. The world hates change. You know what would happen if revival broke out? People would say, well, I don't want what they got. I don't want to change my life. I, I want to miss church for, for Wednesday night baseball. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to go soul winning on Saturday. That, that sounds like something that a real Christian wanting revival would do. I don't want to go to those things. I don't want to do that. I'm pretty comfortable and, and content where I'm at. You know what I, I say to that person? Rudiments of the world. You're staying the same. Do you know the Christian life is a progressive life? And that sounds pretty odd coming from somebody who believes in traditional worship and traditional music, but the Christian life is one of growth. It's one of a babe desiring the sincere milk of the world to one day feasting on the tremendous meat that the Bible has to offer. It's a progressive lifestyle. But there's a lot of people that don't want to change. They're content settling on the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. The reason for this judgment was because the hate of change. But ultimately, I want you to see this. In verse number 7, it all boils down to this. The hate of Christ. Verse number 7. Whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. You see, this is what our world hates. Have you ever heard that song, uh, What a Lovely Name, the Name of Jesus? Have you ever heard the song, There's No Other Name Like Jesus? I say that Jesus is the sweetest name that ever can be uttered from a man's mouth. I say that Jesus is the only name that you can say in chills run up and down your spine. Because Andrew doesn't do it for me. Jean-Claude, no, no, Jean-Claude doesn't even do it for me. Jesus. It's a special name, but it's quite a controversial name. You know, there's people that hate this name. There's people that would not claim his existence nor his power or authority. It all boils down to this. We want revival. The world hates the one who starts revival. They don't want revival because they don't want Christ. And you can say what you want. They don't want to change. Absolutely not. You know where the beginning of change comes from? Christ. You know why a smoker ought to quit smoking after he gets saved? Because it doesn't look like something Christ would do. You want to know why someone ought not cuss after they get saved? Because I can't imagine Jesus Christ cursing. 
You know why we change? Because Christ is the author of it. Because Christ came to this earth so that we would have an opportunity to change. That we would no longer be bound to the weak and beggarly elements of the law. But we would have liberty through Christ. Liberty enough to change. Liberty enough to look into the perfect law of liberty. And see our imperfections. And see our flaws. And say, oh, that doesn't look like Jesus. I ought to become more like Him. Oh, that doesn't reveal my Savior in my life. I ought to change that every day. The reason the world doesn't want Christ is because they hate Him. Take your Bible to the book of John. John chapter 15. You see, I'm not telling you anything that the Bible has not already told me. John chapter 15. Verse number 18. The Bible gives us a warning. The Bible says in John 15, verse 18, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not, uh, they had, not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had done, not done among them the works which none or other man did, they had not had sin, but now they have both seen and hated both me and my Father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without cause. Tonight, I, I want you to think about this. The reason they hated Christ and the reason they still hate Christ is because he points to them and says, you're not good enough. Every single religion in this world, apart from Christianity, has to do something to earn their way. You know why? Because that makes sense in a man's mind, doesn't it? Oh, if I'm good enough, I might be able to earn some respect. Isn't that the way we approach jobs? Oh, if I do good enough, my boss may give me the promotion. That makes sense. But you know what doesn't make sense? undeserved favor from an omniscient God. From a God who sees us at our very worst, knows us at our very least, sees our weakest and uttermost shameful parts, and yet that God is the same God that has the same love and compassion to give us favor? doesn't make sense. But when Jesus came, he said, if I be lift up, I will draw all men unto me. For God sent not his son into this world to condemn the world, that, but through his son they might have eternal life. You understand, Jesus came to point to them and say, you're not good enough, but that's okay. Through me, the resurrection. Through me, the life. Through me, the truth. If you believe on me, you can have salvation. As Jesus came, he pointed to them and said, 
Apart from me, you're going to hell. But with me, you can live eternally with my Father. But the world doesn't like being told they're not good enough. The world doesn't like being told that they can't earn their way or they can do nothing to earn the respect of God. But that's exactly the doctrine and the teaching of Jesus, is that men must submit to Him as Lord and Savior of their life. Could you imagine revival? Revival would be just an amazing and utterly uh, tremendous thing if we were to take part in it. But the Bible says it would be met with hate. The Bible says it would be met with persecution because they persecuted the one who would send us revival. I've told you this story before, but in 1857, there was a revival that broke out in Ulster, Ireland. I'm not going to belabor the story. You may already know it. You may not remember it. But a revival broke out, a tremendous revival. It really began with four young men in a prayer meeting. They did not see a single convert for quite some time, but after a while, they began to see people come to trust Christ. Before the revival broke out, one minister termed the people in the years leading up to the revival as altogether Laodicean. Another noted that there was a great coldness and deadness among the people at the time. The final minister said this. He talked about an indisposition and almost a hostility of the people towards church and prayer meeting. See, those were some bad times. People hated church. They did not want anything to do with God. But revival broke out. You see, Ireland alone saw 100,000 converts. The, the revival spilled over into Scotland, and Scotland saw 300,000. In some of the surrounding areas, they also saw converts almost equaling 500,000 people who came to know Christ as their Savior. Would that not be something to be a part of? One minister was quoted as saying this, It were worth living 10,000 ages in obscurity and reproach to be permitted to engage in the glorious work of the last six months of 1859. He says that in hindsight, but can we have enough foresight about us to say, I'll live in reproach. I'll live in persecution if I could see a tremendous revival in my life. If I could see a revival in Johnson County. Can I give you some examples to how big, how many people 500,000 is? Cleburne in 2013 had 29,747 uh, uh, living in it. Burleson had 40,714. Joshua had 3,819. Joshua was a pretty thriving metropolis. It has a Dairy Queen. Alvarado uh, had uh, 3,819. Joshua had 5,935. Arlington is a pretty big city. And Cowboys included, it had 3,709,577. Keene has 6,076. Granbury has 8,779 people living in it. You say, that's a lot of numbers, and I've already forgot any of them you've said. Let me say it this way. All total between Cleburne, Burleson, Joshua, Alvarado, Arlington, Keene, we still have not met 500,000 people. And yet, Ulster, Ireland had 500,000 converts come to know Christ. Could you imagine being part of something like that? 
Could you imagine every person in the surrounding areas come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior? Could you imagine the, the magnitude, the impact that that many people come to know the Lord and Savior that I know as their Lord and Savior? Could you imagine what would be done for Christ? Truth is, we won't. Unless some people get serious. Unless we understand and we're willing to accept what would come with revival. Unless we're willing to take revival personally and say, I can't depend on Brother James to have revival. And I can't depend on Brother John to have revival. I can't depend on Brother Jay to have revival. But I, Andrew Wolfenbarger, have to start revival in my own heart. And I have to let it spill over into the lives of my family. And I have to disciple people and let it spill over into their life. And you have to become personally responsible. But until that day... We'll see no salvation in Arlington. We'll see no salvation outside of these walls unless revival starts in our heart. But revival will never come unless you're willing to accept what comes with it. Unless you're willing to look the devil in the eye and say, whatever you throw at me, I'm willing to take as long as I see somebody come to know my Savior. See, that's the difference. Paul was willing to lay down his own life for the lives of the people of Israel. Paul was willing to give his own soul to, to suffer eternity apart from the Savior if men would come to know Christ. What are we willing to go through to see revival? Because to be honest, we're never going to see the ups of revival until we're willing to meet the downs of it as well.